This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Francis Marion was an American revolutionary known as the Swamp Fox. Well, now we know him as the Swamp Fox, but we'll get to that. He was famous in his time, so famous that just about any American city named Marion, and there are lots of them, are most likely named for him. His fame escalated in the late 1950s when Walt Disney, looking for a follow-up for the incredible successful miniseries about Davy Crockett, hired Leslie Nielsen to play Francis Marion on TV. So he's one of those names many Americans know, but when you ask them, well, just what did he do? You often get a blank stare. John Allard to the rescue. John Allard's book, The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution, gives us our best look yet at a man whose name, as I said, is known by many, but whose accomplishments are often forgotten. John, good to have you with us. How are you? Good. So Francis Marion essentially did guerrilla warfare against the British. It's it's forgotten, or maybe we're just embarrassed by how many of his tactics have been used against us in recent decades. These were things, though, that... Marion and others used to win our own freedom. Yes. Um, well, he learned, I should back up, he, he, he uh, grew up uh, in the military learning conventional warfare from uh, the British, ironically, uh, fighting the um, French and Indians, specifically the Indians, Native Americans, in the, in the French and Indian War. Um, part of that war involved uh, the Cherokee um, battles against Southerners, South Carolina, principally on the western border of South Carolina. So Marion was trained militarily by the same British officialdom that he would later fight in the in the revolution. However, once they got out to Cherokee territory, they did um, engage in, or at least they witnessed and learned from the guerrilla tactics employed by the Cherokee. Um, so Marion sort of pocketed that information for later use um, and ended up using it 
against the British, uh, and I should say not only the British, but the Tories, who, who were the American Americans loyal to the uh, to the British crown. So Marion fought both of those groups, sometimes together, uh, but often separate, um, uh, u- utilizing the same guerrilla tactics that he had picked up uh, during the Cherokee Wars. Now, Marion had been a Continental Army officer, but we mostly remember him as a, what I guess we would call an irregular. What was going on in South Carolina for him to make that move? Well, the um, uh, a little bit of background, the uh, everybody knows about, uh, you know, Valley Forge and Bunker Hill and uh, Ticonderoga and all the uh, northern cities and areas where the revolution took place. And that's what most people think of the revolution is taking place primarily in the north. But uh, they eventually, Washington reached a stalemate with the British in the north um, around 1780. And they were just kind of looking at each other from, you know, a few uh, 10, 20, 30 miles away. Uh, at that point, the British Parliament decided on what they called the Southern Strategy, which was to go down in starting really in Georgia and working their way up through South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, etc. They were going to topple each of those colonies and then kind of trap Washington in between, uh, in between uh, New York and um you know, Pennsylvania, somewhere in there. Um, so the British went down, they, they, um, they took Charleston um, in a siege. Charleston, uh, the American patriots surrendered, like 5,000 uh, soldiers. And at that point, the British kind of controlled South Carolina, except for little pockets of guerrilla warriors of the type led by, principally by Francis Marion, who were kind of the last um, uh, chance of the Patriots in the South. And so Marion embarked on this guerrilla campaign to kind of harass the British and the Tories, Lord Cornwallis in particular. And he, um, you know, he diverted resources from the British uh, that, that might have been better utilized against the American Continental Army, which eventually came down from the north, led by Nathaniel Green, to um, you know engage in warfare in the south. So Marion was was a guerrilla warrior, but he also worked hat in hand with Nathaniel Green and the Continentals after a certain period of time to take on the British in the south. Yeah, the Continental Army. I guess it's one of the reasons why we think of it uh, so much as fighting in the north. It pretty much as as you say, I mean, with five thousand members of the Continental Army surrendering the British had pretty much been destroyed in the South. As, as a matter of fact, Horatio Gates, who, who until that happened, was considered by many people in the Continental Congress to be a rival to George Washington. Some people in the Continental Congress wanted Gates to take over the war. They didn't think Washington was getting it done. Gates was was really just kind of, you know, destroyed by the British down there. Yeah, well, Gates was the, quote, hero of uh, Saratoga. And so he was very popular, even though some people say, it wasn't really him. It was Daniel Morgan at Saratoga. But in any event, Gates came down and he was routed um, after Charleston fell. He came down and he was routed at Camden, uh, South Carolina, um, and lost his practically his whole army. Now, Marion was lucky. He escaped both, both uh, devastations. He wasn't um, in Charleston at the time it fell because 
he had been at a drinking party. He didn't drink himself, but he got locked inside because uh, they wouldn't let people leave before everybody was completely sloshed. And he jumped out a second story window, broke his ankle and went out into the countryside. He was out there when Charleston fell. So he missed that. He didn't have to um, give his parole promise to stay out of things at that point. And then at Camden, he hooked up with Gates um, briefly, but Gates didn't know what really what to do with him and his ragtag bunch. So he sent them off on some kind of make work assignments. So Marion was not at Camden when the Continental Army was destroyed there. Nonetheless, the Continental Army was uh, in tatters in South Carolina. So that left Marion and his small band as kind of the, you know, the last, uh, the last hope of the of the South at that point in time. I paint us a picture because a lot of times when we see uh, films and read things about that period, a lot of it's based in the major cities. And, uh, you know, we see a bunch of people sitting in their homes, uh, enjoying their tea while they plot out what happens in the revolution. In South Carolina in particular, there was a lot of lawlessness. I mean, this was not a, a rough, oh, we're drinking tea in the Mansion War. No, it was um, it was basically a civil war between Americans, uh, the Tories and the Patriots. And it was brutal. I mean, you know, people um, hacked, uh, soldiers hacked other soldiers who were in the process of surrendering and putting up the white flag. They, people, uh, soldiers would break into other soldiers' homes when they had smallpox and rouse them from their beds and hang them. I mean, it was a very, very brutal, vicious um, civil war, although Marion himself was very particular about not remaining non-bloodthirsty, at least to a a large extent, uh, as compared with some of his uh, colleagues and adversaries. Yeah, I take it that's one of the reasons, the fact that Marion wasn't as cruel as some of his colleagues and adversaries, that helped him both get volunteers and, you know, maybe even more importantly, get the loyalty of people who would go on spy missions for him. Yes, there was that. I mean, you know, as a guerrilla militia commander, uh, he didn't really have any official legal authority over his men. They kind of came and went as they pleased. And when planting season came, they basically went home. Um, and then, you know, if they felt like it, they'd rejoin. So they weren't going to rejoin and, and re-up with someone who was, you know, practiced cruel and unusual punishment on them for, for minor technical violations the way Continental commanders did. Um, I mean, if you, if you stepped out of line in the Continental Army, you know, it was a 50 lashes and, and things like that. Uh, the militia, you know, they just weren't going to stand for the stuff like that. So um, partly uh, it was Marion's essential humanity and partly it was necessity. He just couldn't, he couldn't um, practice the same kind of discipline on his militia guerrilla warriors as he could have if he was commanding Continentals. We have more to tell you about the Swamp Fox as we continue our talk with John Allard. That's next on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio.
Welcome back to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we're hearing about a sometimes overlooked hero of the War for Independence. We're talking with John Aller, the author of The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Let's go back a little and find out a little bit more about Francis Marion, the person, because why was he so involved? What made him a revolutionary? What was his interest in the cause? Well, he was, um, his ancestors were from France. They were French Huguenots who were um, French Protestants, Calvinists, who were um, discriminated against by the Catholic Church in France. And so they were very, uh, and then they emigrated to America, you know, for religious freedom, like the pilgrims uh, did. Um, and so there was a tradition among the Huguenots of anti-monarchism. And Marion, I think, picked that up um, and became a true, I think, a true patriot, unlike some patriots in the South who were sort of joined the patriot cause because they had some personal grievance against some Tory who had once stolen their horse. You know, there was a lot of that that went on. Uh, who, you, who you chose sides with often had to do with kind of ancient grievances you had, ancient personal grievances. Marion didn't have any of those, so he really joined the revolutionary cause out of a true belief in the principles. Your book is titled The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Let's get to that. How did he save the American Revolution? Well, it goes back to those dark days in the early part of the war in the South, where the British really controlled the entire um, colony of, of South Carolina and parts of North Carolina and most of Georgia. And had they uh, fulfilled their Southern strategy, uh, they might well have, you know, avoided Yorktown and just marched up North and in a pincer like movement caught Washington. And they were, they they had every um, intention and capability of doing that. uh, But for the fact that they were, they had their um, resources diverted and attacked by people like Marion, who kept them busy in the South and kept them from just rolling up the South to the North. So um, it's not as if Marion was in any great, you know, field piece battles uh, where he was the commander. He was in one major one toward the end of the war in the South, uh, Utah Springs. But most of his activity was just kind of what I called in the book, death by a thousand cuts. He just... Uh, gradually wore down the morale of the British in the South uh, to the point where at one point Cornwallis said, heck with it, I'm done with South Carolina. This is too much agony. I'm going to go to Virginia, which he did. And he went to Yorktown. And we all know what happened there. Yes. Yeah. Good for us. Otherwise, we might still be struggling to, you know, not be a colony anymore. What did the other, I mean, Washington must have been grateful, but what did the other generals, there are a lot of egos involved here among the generals. What did some of the other generals like Horatio Gates think of this guy who essentially was now out of the Continental Army and was doing all this stuff, you know, pestering the British? What did the other generals think of him? I think they respected his abilities. I don't think they had much respect for his men, for his militiamen. I think the militia were viewed as unreliable. They would cut and run the minute they saw a shiny bayonet from a British soldier. And that was there was some truth to that, particularly in the early going. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I, I don't think Gates, I don't think really understood Marion's style of warfare. Nathaniel Green did. I think Nathaniel Green also had a fairly low opinion of the militia, but he worked pretty well with Marion and they kind of were had a symbiotic relationship. Marion was the eyes and ears of um, a sort of the main intelligence uh, head for Nathaniel Green's Continental Army, you know, a spy in effect. Um, so I think certainly by the end of the war in the South, um, Marion was well recognized by the generals and even by the Continental Congress who gave him a couple commendations for this, this and that battle. Um, uh, that said, you know, he was not known as, he didn't have his nickname, the Swamp Fox, while he was alive. That didn't come until, oh, I don't know, 20 years, probably 15, 20 years after he died. Um, so that's a bit of a misnomer and, and the other misnomers, where did it come from? It came from a book by Parson Weems, Mason Parson Weems, who's the same guy who wrote the book about Washington chopping down the cherry tree and not telling a lie. It was a kind of a mythological, um, book about Marion. I think it was around 18, 10, 12, somewhere in there, um, called, called uh the swamp fox <laughs> and um uh and that's where that's where it comes from the uh, the irony is marion did not actually live in the swamps you couldn't actually live in the swamps in south carolina they were too um filthy and uh, unhealthy um but he lived around the swamps let's let's say so what a lot of americans know about francis marion or the, the swamp foxes we now know him even though that was apparently made up by parson weems the same guy who made up as you point out the george washington chopped down the cherry tree story which never happened uh we know him from two things we know him from that disney series that leslie nielsen baby boomers may remember this uh did that's you know it was a big mini series uh, on television and then um, the Patriot, the Mel Gibson movie, which is, you know, it's the whole thing with that movie was, well, it's, it's, you know, not Francis Marion, but yeah, it's, it's Francis Marion, but Marion wasn't either of those guys from either of those films, was he? No. Um, of course, you know, Leslie Nielsen dressed almost like Davy Crockett in kind of a buckskin, uh, clothing. That wasn't what Marion wore. And, um, uh, Mel Gibson, of course, you know, was kind of a Rambo-like figure who went around and, you know, placed muskets in five different spots and single-handedly took apart a British uh, line supply line, um, fought hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, Marion, the actual man, was a very small guy. He was probably about 5'2", five, 5'3", five, 110 pounds, something like that. I, I say that he had kind of the physique of a thoroughbred jockey. He also walked with a limp. Um, and he wasn't particularly charismatic in terms of, of having a magnetic personality. His charisma uh, came from the really the gravitas he developed and commanded by virtue of his, his success and his devotion to the cause. Um, so yeah, he wasn't, a, he wasn't like Leslie, Leslie Nielsen. Um, and he wasn't anything really like uh Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, I think, in the movie had been widowed, um, and then marries at the end of the movie. Um, Marion was not married at the t during the time of the Revolution. He did marry his first cousin after the Revolution when he was 
like 52 and she was 48, something like that. A lot of patriots after the war were bankrupt, you know, for various reasons. A lot of their wealth came from dealing with the British or they had been away at the war for a long time or they were taxed out of their goods or, you know, whatever. What was Marion's life like? Because his his life was really unlike any of these other people who, you know, were officially part of the Continental Army and all of that. After the war, we don't hear much from him as opposed to George Washington becomes president. John Adams eventually becomes president. Thomas Jefferson eventually becomes president. You know, other generals from from the war don't survive the war. So what was Francis Marion's life like when the war ended? Well, he was, um, I would call him kind of a moderately uh, successful small plantation owner. He went back to his plantation after the war. It was decimated. But... Um, he married, and you know, a woman who had had money, and they kind of rebuilt the plantation, and um, you know, he he had uh, he had like a government uh, job where he was sat and sat and oversaw the prison down there. Um, he did okay. He was not one of the Charleston elite, you know. He was not a uh, Henry Lawrence type figure. Um, you know, any of those, or Charles Coteworth Pinckney, he wasn't part of the, the South Carolina royalty who were kind of the rabble rousers before the revolution. And the main became big politicians and represented South Carolina in the Continental Congress, etc. Marion wasn't really a politician. He did get elected a, a number of times to the South Carolina Senate, but he wasn't a speech maker. He, he really didn't... Um, have any legislative initiatives that he pushed very much. Um, so he was content to um, return to his, you know, farmer roots more or less after the war. So not Mel Gibson, not Leslie Nielsen, certainly not the person from the Parson Weems biography that kind of created much of the legend about the swamp foxes, as Weems called him. But a fascinating and important man in terms of how we got our freedom. John Oller's book about Francis Marion is The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. And John, I thank you so much for spending the time with us and filling in the background of somebody who, again, people know by name, but uh, not that much of what he actually did. So I, I hope we filled that in now. Okay, thank you. You're listening to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. One of the things that we do on these specials every year, besides learn more about how our country came to be in 1776, is to take some breaks and find some ways to enjoy the summer in the present day. Courtney Mason is here to help us with that. Courtney is with the Spruce, a new kind of home site that gives you actually useful information, which is why I suppose more than 32 million people check it out every month. Courtney, welcome. Happy 4th. Thank you. Happy 4th. It's great to be here. One of the topics you cover is how to keep the house cool this summer, which is a thing this year. It looks like it will be for years to come because... It is hot in places that never seem to be this hot for this long, which means many are in houses not really made to take the heat. Yes, and I feel like I'm one of those people. I don't have central ha central air, 
And I try to use fans as much as possible before avoiding firing up my window unit. I'm that person. Um, But you can definitely improve on the old box fan in the window by setting up two fans to work together as a team. One fan pulls cool air into the house and a second fan in a straight line from the first fan pushes air out of the house. And then if you have a ceiling fan, a little trick is that you want to make sure it is set to rotate counterclockwise. This creates this downdraft that feels just like a cooling breeze. And if you don't know where to look, you'll find the switch for that on the side of your fan motor or on the remote control. And I love these tricks because they make me feel like a a meteorologist in my own home. I'm controlling my wind patterns. Got such such power to create coolness in my home. Yeah, it's amazing how many of those fans have those controls or they have a chain to do the job. And many people just turn the fan on and off and they pay no attention to that. But they're really there for a reason. (laughs) It turns out, right? So what are some of the other things we can do to keep the keep the house cool. Yes. So sometimes it is time to fire up the air conditioner, right? You just, you've reached a heat that you can't tolerate with your fan system. And when you do that, you want to make sure that you're keeping your air filter clean. If your air filter is clogged up with dirt or dust or pet dander or any of those good things, the air conditioner can't do its job effectively. So check your unit. If it has a reusable air filter, that needs to be washed monthly for optimal efficiency. And if it's a disposable air filter, you'll need to replace that every 90 days or so. But it's really important to keep your air filter clean. Your air conditioner will run more efficiently. It keeps your home cooler, ultimately reducing your electric bills, which is a win-win. Yeah, one one easy tip, which we've used for years, because uh, where we're living now and the last place we lived were in places that historically only had just so many hot days a year and now have lots of hot days a year. So yeah, there was no AC or anything like that, which is we open all the windows at night. And then as soon as we get up in the morning, we close them all. It's amazing how cool that can keep the house for the day. It's a really good tip, opening your windows at night and then closing them during the day. And then when you're looking at your windows, you further want to keep your blinds closed during the day. That can really play a big role as well. As can taking a look at your light bulbs. Change out older light bulbs if you have any for newer models. Those can be both more energy efficient, but then they also don't emit any heat. So again, save money, stay cool. We love these win-wins. So give me as a final thing in terms of a summer decor tip, something that people can do with their homes that will make it their own, style it for themselves, but if comes resale time, something that besides paint, which you know is again, just paint, something that, that's easy to fix and can make their home as bland as buyers <laughs> and realtors seem to want it to be. What, what kind of things should you be looking at? One thing you could do to your backyard in the summer for, for hosting and really making your backyard your own is to create an outdoor movie theater space. Backyard theaters became a really big trend during the pandemic. People loved that it allowed for socially distant outdoor entertaining, but we've seen that they're here to stay. The Spruce recently evaluated outdoor movie screens on their ease of assembly and durability and image quality. So pair our recommended screens with just a projector, audio system and content source like a laptop and you're good to go. It's fun for all ages. It really elevates a summer party 
and gives you a chance to feel extra if you like by taking it up a notch with an intermission, with drink tickets, and with a popcorn machine. And it's totally temporary, right? You can pop it up and pop it down uh, as you have guests or don't and want the space back. It sounds great. Good tips from Courtney Mason from the Spruce. And you can go there and just find tons of stuff that, you know, you can actually do and is actually practical, which I think makes it stand out from a, a lot of uh, home sites where you may just go ooh and ah, but it just, you know, doesn't have any relevance for your life, which is why the Spruce is a valuable thing. Courtney, have a wonderful summer. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy Fourth, everyone. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We've assembled something of an all-star lineup for this year's special of people who write accurately and vividly about how this nation came to be. And joining us now is David O. Stewart, admired initially as an attorney and then as an historian and then as a historical fiction writer, having just begun a new series of novels, by the way, with a book called The New Land. He has also written histories of our founding fathers, including his latest, George Washington. David, it's good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. You call this a political history, which is interesting because I think Washington is often viewed as being who he was because he wasn't a politician. But you underline some gifts that he had and used that I think most Americans don't associate with him. Indeed. He was, a, we think of him as a, most often as a general, a farmer, uh, a statesman, whatever that might be. I. Uh, and we overlook the fact that he really was a skilled political operator um, and that those skills were really important for his advancement uh, and that he was not a natural politician. That was a key part of his success, uh, frankly, as a, as a general, as well as uh, later in life when he really became a full-time politician. And we tend to neglect the fact that he came to be in a position where he became general because he had learned politics uh, in the colony of Virginia. Uh, he spent uh, 16 years in the uh, Virginia colonial legislature, the House of Burgesses, which was longer than he was ever a soldier. Uh, and he learned how to operate in a political context when he had great skills and talents, but also some limitations. Uh, and that's, you know, what we all have to figure out, but politicians especially, which is how to accentuate your strengths and control your weaknesses. Well, let's go back in time with him a bit, because early on, he was considered by some people as something of a loser whose ego was bigger than his actual ability. He was 22 when he became had his first command, and he wasn't quite ready for it. Uh, and it was a difficult command, one that... Uh, more experienced men would have had much trouble with. And uh, he had experienced a lot of failure. He was fighting Indians on the Western frontier and Virginia soldiers were not good at that. He then, uh, as he grew frustrated, uh, managed to alienate most of his sponsors and particularly the man who had appointed him to the job. So that was, uh, a real mistake and when he finally leaves uh, the military uh, in the French and Indian War, this is that period of the 1750s, 
uh, he's really sort of ruined his reputation with people who matter in Virginia. Um, a lot of people knew he was a brave soldier, but the people who mattered a lot thought he was very difficult and he had poor judgment. He had a temper, something else that we don't associate with him now. He always had a temper and he knew it and he tried to control it. Uh, and when he lost it, people talked about it for a lot. Uh, he once lost it at a cabinet meeting and he lost it on a couple of battlefields. That was an issue. I've often wondered if the sight of a large man, and he was a large man, he was six foot three, struggling to control his temper might in fact be more intimidating than the sight of a large man actually losing his temper, <laughs> that he might well have learned to use that. Six foot three may sound to a lot of people like not much in the, you know, these days of watching the NBA on TV. At that time, as becomes obvious when you walk into the houses of that time, six foot three was gigantic. He was notable for how large he was. He was never heavy, but uh, there was a wonderful record of the size of the men in his French and Indian War regiment. And there were only, of 500, there were only five others who were six feet tall. And most were five foot five, five foot six. So he was a very big man. He was also lucky in those days. At the Battle of the Monongahela in the French and Indian War, he could have been killed any number of times. And the fact that he wasn't, that he kept surviving, is in a way where his national legend begins. That is a legend that begins in in very sort of mystical, legendary terms. But yeah, he was uh, crazy brave. And we always admire that in people. Uh, that is, uh, when you're facing death, uh, to continue to do your duty is, is quite remarkable. And he did it. Uh, he had bullets go through his clothes, through his hat. Uh, two horses were shot that he was riding. He was the biggest guy on the field, so he was a good target. And uh, it was quite miraculous. He never got a scratch. You know, you talked about his years in the House of Burgesses. He was a justice of the Fairfax County Court, which which sounds boring. And before reading your book, I frankly had only seen one other mention of it in people writing about George Washington. I mean, it sounds boring, especially in a world where people have become president with no political background at all these days. But those days in truly local government were really important to George Washington becoming who he did become. Uh, I agreed entirely the local court decided minor cases which you know was an interesting way to understand people's lives you do see people's lives in their disputes um but the more important part is what you were referring to which is they were responsible for the roads for the ferries for the licensing of taverns and they had to get people to agree on stuff i mean we still have these issues. I mean, you know how hard it is to get a speed bump either installed or taken out of your neighborhood. Um, this is when you are really dealing at gut level um, political life. It's not partisan, but it's how you deal with people. And he was exposed to that for six years. And I think it's the sort of thing he was extremely good at. Uh, and he would always, he was always a listener. Um, John Adams once referred to his gift of silence. 
there's a sort of jokey reference that has been made that he could be silent in five languages. Um, and, you know, when people confront someone who just listens to them, they generally think that was a great meeting because <laughs> they got to talk. Um, and I, I think these were skills he learned. He learned that it wasn't important to be the smartest guy in the room, but to appear to be the wisest guy in the room, the most considerate guy in the room. And that's what he he turned himself into. That was a very wise choice on his part because he's not a great speaker. He's not Patrick Henry. He's he's not Tom Paine. He is not vastly educated. Really, speaking might be more likely to show his weaknesses than his strengths. Well, that's exactly right. He had two real limitations. One, as you mentioned, was his education. He only had three or four years of formal education. He was embarrassed about it. He never referred to whether he'd actually been tutored or gone to a school because he thought it was so unimpressive. Um, and, you know, around people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, read Roman uh, philosophers for, for pleasure, um, you could feel stupid. Um, but he also had a poor voice, which was an odd thing for such a tall, impressive looking guy. And he was a great athlete, too. But he had a very weak sort of breathy voice, which meant he was never going to make much of an impression as an orator. So he didn't try. Oration was not one of his skills. We have more ahead on George Washington with David O. Stewart coming up on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking to David O. Stewart, whose latest book is a political biography of George Washington, a side of him that is too often neglected. Some revolutionary leaders tried to convince Washington that freedom and independence were not compatible with slavery, and there's no glossing over the fact that not only did he have slaves, but that Mount Vernon could be a tough place to be one. What's that line somebody wrote? Everything bad that could happen to a slave happened at Mount Vernon. Um, until his, until he goes into the army, and he's 43 then, he's a mature individual, there is no evidence that he thought slavery might be a problem. I think his army service, when he had soldiers, uh, African-American soldiers, who fought and died and suffered for his freedom, his liberty, he changed his view. And he goes through an evolution. He announces to his uh, plantation managers that he wants to have uh, to be a, a good slave owner, which means you don't break up families, uh, you know, and that he realizes after a few years is is kind of ridiculous. You're still a slave owner. You still own these people. And then he spends about 10 years after the war and while president trying to figure out a way to get out of slavery himself uh, or out of the slavery business. He uh, has to buy all of Martha's slaves out of the court, basically, because they were owned by her first husband, and they are in trust for his ultimate successors, who are Martha's grandchildren. So Washington can't just free them without giving their value to that estate. And he tries to raise the cash to do it. It's a lot of money, and he's always been land rich and cash poor. And he can't do it. So finally, on his deathbed, he just 
implements a, a will that frees the slaves he owned himself, which is, is 100 people. It's not trivial. Um, but that's as much as he can legally do. Uh, he also tells a number of people in confidence, in private conversations, that he would like the southern states to adopt gradual emancipation laws as the northern states did. We had slavery in every state. Um, we like to tell each other, if uh, northern people like to say they didn't have it, but they did. Uh, but what the northern states did is adopt these gradual emancipation laws, which could take 20, 30, 40 years before everybody is free. You know, it's the next generation when they reach 21, they become free. But they did it. And Washington says repeatedly he would like that to be done for the whole country, but he never says it publicly. He clearly made a political calculation that either it wasn't going to work or it was going to be too divisive, that it would destroy the country. There were a lot of people who felt that confronting the slavery issue early in the nation's history would, in fact, destroy the country. And, you know, in 1861, it created the Civil War. So it's, it's not easy to say he was wrong. Uh, but we do have a situation where he's saying one thing in private and he's not following through in public. And that's uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, it was not a moment of courage for, by him. David, it, it's been enlightening and a pleasure to talk about our first president with you. I thank you so much for spending the time with us. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.